you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 8. Many times we come to the Bible, and either because of what we've heard, what somebody's told us, how somebody tried to explain something a certain way, or depending on what a denomination believes, that's just kind of what we subscribe to and we don't question it. It's much like that when you are especially involved in a situation where you've heard nothing but works and some sort of response from you of performance is necessary for God to accept you and you actually find out, no, it's actually all about the work of Christ and it's done and it's finished. And when he said it's finished, he meant it was finished. For a lot of people, that's revolutionary. Uh, the, the greatest foundational building block for how you live your life from this point forward is the doctrine of assurance. How do I know I'm truly saved? And so what we're told often is, well, examine your works. And if you see the works of the Holy Spirit, you know that you're truly saved. You say, well, how good do I have to be for that? Well, nobody can really tell you that, all right? As long as you're doing better than the next person. You know, so you look over the next person, you're like, well, yeah, that person's a schmuck. I'm doing way better than that, all right? You look across the, the church, yeah, well, that's Schmitty over there. His life's a mess. I'm doing way better than that. So sometimes we use that. When we find out, it all boils down to one thing, really. What has God said? That's really what it is. Forget all the rest of that stuff. It's all distraction anyway. It's all mirage anyway. It's all, it, it, let's be honest, it's all bondage that Satan has inserted into the church to keep us from truly living awesome, vibrant, spirit-filled, bursting lives where Christ is all in all in everything that we do. And so my hopes today when we're going through Romans and as we go through Romans is that we would recognize that some of our thinking might need to be shifted a little bit. Some of it might need to be dusted off. Some of it might need to be completely flipped like a pancake. And that's okay. As long as we're getting what we believe about God from God's word, I think we're on safe ground. So let's start in chapter 8. Let's read verse 1. We'll just read along here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no enslavement to the sin nature, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And for that, I say, praise God. I am already set free from the indwelling, rooted, impulsive desires that want me to do wrong. I just got to believe it. It's true. Jesus has already taken care of it. I just got to start acting like it. I've got to start relating my life in such a way as to where what God says about me is true. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that's the problem, God did, there's the solution, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the cross of Christ opens up the grand doors of complete liberation from all the stuff that we hate about ourselves. Praise God for that. That's great. I'm excited. I love it. And it's not because I've had too much coffee, man. It's good. So notice, there's a choice to make. Am I going to live my life for what I want to do and keep ending up unsatisfied, even though I have a relationship with God through Christ? Or am I going to recognize that what I want to do always ends in failure? It's always self-serving. It's always coming up short. And I'm actually going to trust the Lord to deal with my life, my daily living. Now let's stop for a minute. We'll get to this a little bit later in Romans. I think Paul kind of brings this up later as like a duh moment for us in Romans, okay? But think about this. Haven't we already trusted him with our eternal destiny? Okay? But for some reason, I'm not going to put today in his hands. That's silly, is it not? I mean, that's foolishness by very definition. So it just doesn't make sense. So knowing what Christ has liberated us with, the cross, his blood, taking care of it, dealt with the sin nature, he now is moving us to the idea of where the power comes from to live. And that is from the Spirit of God. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. They proposition themselves completely in that direction. 
but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life, and that's abundant life, and peace. Unbelievable, still tranquility in the midst of a hell in a handbasket situation that is this life. That's what it is. And I make no apologies for calling, that, calling it that. I don't know if you notice this. Life's not very great apart from Christ. It's just not. I mean, think about it. Outside of eternal hope, what do you have to look forward to here? We just all got back from Thanksgiving, did we not? Some of us gathered. Some of us didn't gather. I have really great family. I love my family. Everything was really good. Some of you don't like your family. And the big thing you came back from Thanksgiving was, is thank you, God, it's over. Right? You brought home some leftovers and that was it. You saw that sister you hadn't seen in a while or that, you know, uncle, that you know, weird uncle Al, I don't know. But man, you're glad it's over. There's not much to look forward to in this life in and of itself if it doesn't have a hope that is motivating it. And what God wants to do in our lives is bring us to a point of recognizing we cannot satisfy us. It's just not an answer. There's more. And the great thing is, is that God freely gives it, freely gives it. So it says here, verse seven, because the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Everybody remember that? That sound right there? Yeah, button heads with him. Fighting against him, his enemy. It's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. You're not in submission to God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that's no way to live. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And this should probably be translated since, since indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, if the spirit of God dwells in you, then all possibilities to live a pleasing life to God are yours already. Already. It's already there. What keeps us from living that pleasing life is not that we don't have the ability and the power. God gave us the ability and the power by indwelling us with the Spirit. He had to bring in the outside active agent inside the closed system in order to make a difference so we don't just break down and decay and fall apart. So the Spirit of God is in there ready to do the work. The question is, is do we believe He can do it? And are we willing to let go and have our knuckles turn a normal color again so that he can take our life and do it. So he says here, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the spirit, you're not God's. And that's a problem that needs to be rectified today. How do I receive the spirit of God? You believe in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the grave, period. It's by faith and faith alone. That's it. You either are convinced or you're not convinced. That's a choice that you have to make. That's a decision that you have to come to. So verse 10, since, or if, should be since, Christ is in you. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, this flesh that causes you to sin, through his spirit who dwells in you. In you, So now he comes to our, to our verse for today. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh. You don't have to live to the flesh anymore. Those things that make you want to sin, those words that you would like to come back with, that attitude that you keep bringing to the table, guess what? You're the only person that's perpetuating that. We are our greatest problem. Christ is our only solution. The Spirit is the power to get past it. We're so quick to take up arms when Christ is saying, no, lay them down and surrender. Surrender. And watch what I can do through you if you would just step out of the way. Or the King James says it this way, yield, yield. Don't you love a yield sign when you come to an intersection? You're like, I should stop, but I don't have to. And you just keep going, right? But what's it mean? It means hold up because something else might be coming. And you don't want to get splattered. Guess what? In your life, hold up because something else is coming. You don't want to get splattered and it's good stuff. So now he says here, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit, there's the power, 
you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit of God is the divine execution tool to deal with the flesh. Nothing else will deal with it. You can starve yourself to death. You can, I'm going to memorize the entire Bible. You can do that. You can try. I'm going to lock myself away. I'm going to make sure that I never say those words again. Man, you, you can make all kinds of promises in life. Guess what? If it's devoid of the Spirit, it will never happen. And if any of it does begin to happen, you can guarantee that pride is going to step up and say, I did that. I did that. I did that. That's why the gospel is no boasting. Why? Because we do no work. None. Now, I've been, I've been pushing this book on you guys to read. Most fantastic book I've ever read that helps me understand the intricacies of the Bible better. I'm going to bring up the quote, Ruth Paxson, Life on the Highest Plane. I was actually able to get Kathy Grant to check that book out now. So she's got, a, she's got it out of her library. We only have one copy. In the divine plan, there is as definite a purpose in the gift of the Spirit as in the gift of the Son. Through the Son, the sinner has life. But through the, through the Spirit, the believer has life more abundant. Through the Son, the sinner leaves the sphere of the natural and enters the sphere of the spiritual. And through the Spirit, the believer is lifted to the highest heights of life on the spiritual plane. Next slide, please. God has a purpose for every Christian, a life of true, deep, vital, growing spirituality. And the Holy Spirit lives within every believer as God's gracious provision for the accomplishment of this very purpose. There is not one person sitting here that is insignificant to our Father. Not one person. Not one person is wasted ever. Sometimes we come to life so hopeless and helpless. I'm surprised when you see the rates that are going on about suicide hotline and, and that type of thing. People are begging. Please call us. You'll remain anonymous. There's nothing to worry about, but fear is what keeps people from doing that. Yet they'll go ahead and they'll take their own life because they don't have any hope. None. And we keep expecting the world to get better, and it's not. We keep expecting these little inconveniences to go away, and they just become increasingly agitating. And we find that we're not wanting to deal with it anymore. Churches are having fights and splitting over whether or not to wear a mask. Anybody read Romans 13? There's no authority that's been put in power except by God. God put that authority there and you disobey that authority, you disobey God. It seems like petty situations like that are easily cured by God's word because our thinking is wrong, because we take up our own rights, because our first inclination is to embrace the flesh. It's all about me and what I want. And as long as that is there, it will hinder the spirit of God using you for the greatness of God. Paul wants to get us past that. And he is going to great lengths to make us recognize, choose to walk in the Spirit. Let the Spirit do his work. Give him a chance. Watch what he can do. I think David says it this way, taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 14. For all who are being led... By the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. Let's go over it again to make sure we grasp this, because we're going to go really slow. For, there's your causal conjunction. We just got done talking about how it's the Holy Spirit that puts the flesh deeds to death. And he wants us to understand a grand plateau that he's showing us here for all who are being led is that active or passive church it's passive all who are being led by the spirit of god these are the sons of god now you go back you pull a commentary off the shelf and they'll tell you if there's not evidence of you being led by the spirit probably want to question whether or not you're really saved that has jack diddly to do and that's the technical greek term has jack diddly to do with what Paul's talking about here. 
Paul dealt with whether you were saved or unsaved in chapter 3. He's not dealing with that anymore. He's talking about Christian growth. Now, I'm going to do this. I want to read 13, 14, 15, sorry, 14, 15, 16, and 17 together so we can see an interesting transition. And then we're going to focus on 14 and 15 and look at some other things. 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons. That's the spirit we've received by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. If if your Bible says to, testifies to our spirit, it translated it wrong. Mark that out right in with. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if, and that shouldn't be translated since, this is a contingency, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Does everybody see the difference between children and sons? Children and sons. Does everybody see that difference? Yes? These are not the same thing. And so when you deal with this idea in verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Why? Because those who have given up their personal rights and have submitted to the Spirit leading their lives are demonstrating not just a childlike trust in a parent, which very much God is, but also the fact that they are being matured by the Spirit. You don't mature yourself. I can't mature me. I can do all the Bethmore Bible studies in the world. It ain't going to make me more mature if I'm not letting the Spirit do the work. Doesn't matter what you're invested in. If it is not looking for the Spirit to be the agent of change and receiving the Word of God with meekness, you will not be a different person. We wonder why we keep hitting our heads against the wall. Paul's telling us the solution. You've got to be led by the Spirit. Instead, we, that, that guy's so great because he's so driven. He's driven. Who's driving? Who's driving? No, that person is. There's no airbags and there's no seatbelts. Just... That's how you live life in the flesh. You're so driven. I've never known anybody that was driven that got anything done for the glory of God. I've known tons of instances where people are led by the Spirit. And it didn't matter how big the return was. What was evident was it was God's work. That's the difference. We're not talking about numbers. We're not talking about quantity. We're talking about quality work. And only Spirit-led work is quality work. So here's what we're getting at. When you come to faith in Christ, you are immediately a child of God. Nothing can take that away. You immediately have an inheritance that God has given you freely by his grace. Nothing can take that away. But God desires for his children to grow. And he desires for them to grow up to be sons and daughters. And what Paul is revealing us to us here, and probably something that this church in Rome already understood, is the idea that in order to mature and to grow in your Christian walk, in your walk so that Christ is living his life. It is one of letting the Spirit lead you. That evidences our maturity and our high standing with him. Now, take your Bibles with me, please, because that might bother some of you. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount where it starts. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, longest recorded teaching that Jesus ever gave. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I would love to go through it verse by verse at some point. I want to move quickly for the sake of time. We don't have Sunday school today, but I'm still going to respect everybody's time. You decide for yourself whether or not that was a spirit-led comment. Chapter 5, verse 1, just to get a, a running start of the context. When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Pay close attention. Jesus is the speaker. He removes himself from the crowds of people, and he's got the audience exclusively of the disciples at this point. Verse 2, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, Now watch this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Does everybody see that there is a blessing that is given for an attitude or perspective that is taken in a present circumstance that gives way to a future return? Does everybody see that? Let me give you another example. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, or some translations say the meek or the humble. Okay? Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you if you are meek, gentle, humble now. Why? Because in the future you shall inherit, notice it's future tense, the earth. There is a present attitude, demeanor, and perspective that we can come to our lives with now that will guarantee a reward, a payment for investment made in the future. Does everybody see that? Yes? Yes? Who's awake this morning? Can't sleep here, man. Here we go. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Stop. Is that a good thing? Oh, man, that's a real good thing. Blessed are the peacemakers. Look what it says. For they shall be called sons of God. Someone who is looking to make peace in every situation. Now, didn't we just talk about that if you're led by the Spirit, life and peace are coming out of you, right? Didn't we see that in Romans 8? Life abundant and peace that passes all understanding. Man, that's good stuff. Well, guess what? If you're looking to minister that into the lives of other people, that demonstrates you're maturing with God. And you will be called sons of God. I thought everybody was called sons of God. No. Not all believers are sons of God. Not all believers are daughters of God. And in every passage you take, you have to use context to determine the meaning. Every time. Sons of God is sometimes used for the angelic realm of beings that we can't really say that they're angels, but something, but they present themselves before God, of which Lucifer is considered one of them still, even though in his fallen state. Let that one blow your mind for a while. Job chapters one and two. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's dealing with how believers live their life on earth and what the return will look like in future reward. Now watch how this is attached, verse 10. He says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Because when we get to the idea of suffering and what it entails in Romans 8, it's very important that you suffer for the right reasons. Not because I didn't get to go to the movies. Not like that, man. This is for righteousness. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everybody see the future reward? Notice what it says here. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice the reason why, because of Christ. When people give you a hard time, when they're busting your chops because of Jesus, sit back and smile. Why? Because your Lord has promised to reward you greatly. Doesn't matter what people say. People are jerks. They are. How do I know that? Because when I'm in the flesh, I'm a jerk too. I'm not any better than them. Just thank God we have the scriptures that's telling us what's really going on in life. So when we, when we get that kickback about Christ, number one, it t- talks about what kind of ground they stand on. Number two, it tells us what we can anticipate in the future. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward. That word actually means wages for work that you've done getting paid back because you invested. You punched the time card for Christ is the idea. Notice, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Entire Old Testament is full of examples who hated the word of Christ. Guess what? They're rewarded beyond their understanding. What do you think it happened to all those people that persecuted them? Things that make you go, hmm, right? Interesting. Notice that the idea of being a son of God is a special privilege that is given. It's something that is attached to the idea of reward. Now, what's interesting is, is before this chapter is over, Jesus wants to hit on this idea again. Skip down to verse 43. He says here in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now stop. Is that your natural inclination? 
No. Our first inclination is, can you step outside in the parking lot for a second? Right? That's our first inclination. As we believe that our struggle is against flesh and blood, and so we're going to deal with it in a fleshly way. And that's how we're going to fight. You cannot love your enemies apart from God's Spirit. And you definitely can't pray for those people who are persecuting you, who hate you, who think less of you, or who express their profound disappointment in you because of Christ. You can't deal with that without the Spirit. It's impossible. you got to have the power of the Spirit. So notice what he says, verse 45. Here's the reason. So that you may be what? What's it say, church? Sons of what? Sons of your Father who's in heaven. Now let me ask you this. In verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are those peacemaking endeavors? Man, they are. It is an attitude of reliance on the Spirit where you're seeking to take the air out of the balloon of tension in the room. Because instead of being hated and you hating back, instead of being ridiculed and you wanting to fight back, guess what it is? No, I'm here to make peace. Why? Because the gospel is way more important than your attitude right now. Because Jesus can save even you. Sometimes, and I don't know if you came back from Thanksgiving, sometimes you think about people, you know, that person's never going to come to faith in Christ. Number one, I guarantee that God put you in their life so you could tell them about Jesus. Number two, there's no one that God can't reach. Not a single person. His arm is much longer than what you're giving him credit. His love is much greater than what you're putting up there. So don't, don't put that restriction on him. But in the fact of being peacemakers, guess what? If that's our endeavor, our reliance on the spirit to love the unlovable, what do you see come out of that? Well, he tells you, so that you may be sons of your father. Now wait, Jesus is speaking. Who's his audience? Disciples, you think they're already saved people? I think they are. Why is he explaining to them what it is to be sons if they're already saved? Because sonship demonstrates maturity and it demonstrates intimacy so that the spirit is working through them. That's why. Notice what he does. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For, here's the explanation. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you have love for those who love you, what reward do you have? That's easy, right? It's really easy to love my wife. Why? Because she loved me. That's a spirit-led endeavor on her part, I guarantee you. But it's real easy. Oh, you love, I love you. Mm. Kissy face, right? We got no problem emojiing up our phone on that one. Yeah, hearts everywhere. What reward do you have? None. Do not even tax collectors do the same? Helps you think what Jesus understood about the IRS at that time, doesn't it? That's the way the tax collectors act. No big deal. But look what he says here. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Nothing. Do not even Gentiles, or that could be translated pagans, do not even pagans do the same? Yeah, yeah. So now he wants to summarize it for you. Verse 48, and this freaks everybody out. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You do a study on this Greek word, teleos is the word. And it's used all throughout the New Testament to mean mature, growing, adult is what it means. It's talking about maturity. And notice when you talk about being sons of God, and it caps this off at 48 with maturity, sandwiched in between is the idea of reward, because you are responding to the world in a way better than what the world responds to itself. Does everybody see that? That's what puts that together. Sons is something to be grown into. It's not something that you automatically have. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. There's a whole huge argument that goes on that Paul is making here. Not argument bad, argument explanation good. But in Galatians 4... Paul makes a very interesting argument. And what he's going to show us here, that you already have the ability to be sons. The question he's going to ask is, are you being sons? You already have all the guns to win the zombie apocalypse. The question is, did you bother to pull the trigger? You can take them out. I know that's the dumbest example in the world, but good grief, I got all your attention right now. You're all looking up like, what is wrong with him? Answer is everything, but I don't have a better example, okay? Chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 1. Now I say to you, as long as the heir is a child, and if you look in your marginal notes there in the New American Standard, it says minor. 
underage, okay? Look And think about what we were talking about with law and grace here, how you live as a Christian. He says here, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. Let me ask you this. When you first came to faith in Christ, did you still do some things in your life like you did in the world? One of my good friends years ago, when he first got saved, he was so excited he went and celebrated by smoking a whole lot of pot. He didn't know how else to praise the Lord. That's the way he had always celebrated in the past. Was he really saved? Yeah. Was he discipled and growing? Well, no, he just freshly out of the birth canal. What in the world are we expecting? That's him slobbering all over himself. We got to wipe that chin and nurture him up. That's what the church is supposed to do. So we have grace on him. You see what I'm saying? So notice, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. Even though everything has been given to them in Christ and all the ability by the power of the spirit now indwells them, they're not for sure how to utilize all these wonderful things yet. And so they have to learn and grow and learn and grow. Verse two, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, until a time of maturity is reached. Verse three, so also we, while we were children, we were held in, what's that word? Pay attention, guys. Because what the world often calls addiction, the Bible calls bondage. When we frown upon somebody because they have a drug addiction, they have a porn addiction, they have a spending addiction, they have an eating addiction, they have a self addiction, they have a pride addiction, whatever you want to call it, all of those things are actually forms of bondage in their life where the flesh still has a hold of them in some way. And the only way those things can be unrooted is by a change of thinking by the word of God and the spirit utilizing that fire or that wood to get the fire going to transform them. People transform from the inside out, not from the outside in. Let's not get that mixed up. We're so worried about whether or not we see results. I think he's saved. That's not your place. Don't do that. Question is, is how are they walking in the spirit? And what are we doing to encourage them in their maturity? So he says here, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The world still had a grip on us while we were we ones is the idea. It still had a hand in our life, was still given some say-so. We were still given some credence about what people thought and whether or not we were being impressive and how we should operate and act. But notice what he says here moving on, verse four. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive. The adoption as what? Sons. In other words, that's God's pinnacle hope for us in the death of resurrection of Christ. It's not just getting us saved and getting us in the door. That's grand, wonderful, awesome, and we spent an incredible amount of time on that truth. And hopefully it's left left a lasting impression. But the fact is, is that God wants to take us farther. He wants more out of us. Why? Because he can do more through us. So notice the hopes is that every believer might receive the adoption of sons, that I might be matured by God, not myself, by God, that I would so get my hands off my life and get rid of the same continuous disappointing results so that there's a freshness of the spirit that lights me up. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you were on fire for the Lord? I know that's a little charismatic to say. When's the last time you were on fire for Christ? Are you on fire now? If not, why not? Think about it. That's a, that's a you question. I can't answer that for you. You know your life. You know where your hope lies. You know where your reliance is, and you know also where it's not. And if we find for some reason there's not a fire in our life going on, let me ask you the question. Does God want you to be lit up? Is God the one who lights you up? Okay, so where'd the match go out? It's important to ask. Because God's desire for us is blazing, on fire, mind-blowing, set on a hill. People can see it for miles and miles around. That's God's desire for us. 
And he wants to take us there. What's that known as? It's the adoption of sons. It's maturing because we've trusted him and we're cultivating intimacy with him. I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this situation. I just trust the spirit to lead me. Man, that's scary. Good grief. It's so biblical. It's so biblical. Look what he says here, moving on, verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Anybody know what Abba means? It's an Aramaic term that was usually used within the house. What's Abba mean? Daddy. Daddy. I love nothing more than when my kids call me daddy. I love it. I'm so thankful Nathaniel doesn't come to me, um, Father. I'm so glad. But when he calls me daddy, he understands there is a bond there that is undeniable. And good grief, it melts your heart every time you hear it out of his mouth. I love it. Don't tell my wife. I'm trying to teach Zechariah that before he gets out mama right now. (laughs) She's not supposed to know. Moving on. The spirit of his son into our hearts. Notice, crying. Abba. Father, why? Because of Jesus Christ, the indwelling spirit has made us his sons. Everything that you need to be a son or a daughter of God in a mature way has already been given to you. God is waiting for the opportunity when we come to him in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven. Oh, God, hallowed be thy name. All good stuff. We're not going to clown that at all. But when times are hard, when hearts are breaking, when tears are flowing, when you feel absolutely defeated by everything else and you come to him and you say, Daddy, I don't have anywhere to go. That possibility has been made a reality because of the Spirit. And he loves it when we come to him like that. He loves it. So he says here, your sons, God gave you his Spirit. It's in our hearts. It cries out, Daddy. It cries out, Daddy, when we don't cry out, Daddy. Look what it says in verse 7. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. You don't have to live according to the things of the world. You don't have to be immature all your life. You don't have to be 30 years in Christ and only a two-year-old. He wants you to be blossoming and thriving. You're no longer a slave, but a what? Man, everybody's asleep. Let's say it together. Son. You're a son. That's who you are. That's who you are in Christ. Or daughter. The Bible is not slandering gender here. You are actually in a position of incredible divine intimacy. Do you believe it? Do you embrace it? But a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. You know what that means? You got full rights. That means that everything that God would ever want to give Jesus, he also gives to you. Why? Because you have full rights as a son who's been adopted into this family, just as Jesus is the son of God. You are not a tertiary member of the family. You are set on an equal plane of acceptance before the father because his son made it possible for you and I to become sons and daughters of the most high. That is now made available by grace. So notice, then you're an heir through God. Verse 8, watch this. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature are no gods. In other words, we were falsely led previously in our infantile state. Now watch what he says here, verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it? Now this is a really good question. Think about it, church. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? In other words, if God has set you free, if Christ has made redemption possible, if he's given you the spirit of his son in his hearts in such a sense to where you can have this incredible familial intimacy with him and call him daddy, then why in the world would you turn around and look at the things that the world has to offer and notice they're called weak and worthless. They're base. Why would you go back to those things and everybody see the word enslaved? Why would you want to be in bondage to those things if Christ has set you fully free? If you already have every spiritual blessing in him. Does that make sense? No, why? 
God's desire for us is to be sons, not to remain children, not to remain attached to these elementary things of the world. He desires more. Well, I don't know if I can give any more. You don't have to. You just have to give up what you're holding on to, and that's you. There are some things I want to give on to, hold on to. There are some things I want to keep for myself. Give it up. What good is coming out of it? The answer is nothing, by the way. Turn to Revelation 21. Last instance we'll look at, we'll go back to Romans 8. What we're seeing here is that sonship speaks to intimacy and maturity. And that's not so much as us sitting out to obey the Lord. It's pretty much us taking our hands off of it and say, Lord, whatever you're asking, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to be led by the Spirit. Revelation 21. Look at verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Good grief, that's a beautiful come to Jesus verse. That is the offer of eternal life justification. Everybody see that? But now he's going to explain to you abundant life sanctification. Look what he says here in verse 7. He who overcomes. Short story. One of Pastor Steve's papers he had to do in seminary was about the overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3. So if you read Revelation 2 and 3 and you see how the word overcome is used, it's consistent throughout the book. Man, did he tick off some professors by the, by the perspective he took. It's fun to listen to him tell it. Ask him sometime. You'll see him light up like a Christmas tree. It's good. He who overcomes, the one who has steadfast perseverance, who doesn't allow for the influences of the world to make them compromise their intimacy with Christ. That's what it is. The overcomes. Overcomes this world. Overcomes sin. Recognizes that what God has said about you is way more important than what people think about you. That's the idea. He who overcomes, speaking to Christians, will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my what? Son. Sons inherit. Sons have a special inheritance. But notice the being a son here is contingent upon overcoming. Is the water of life offered freely? Yeah, and whoever wants to drink can. That's the message of salvation but this is speaking about what your maturity looks like. Now let's go back to Romans 8. Three separate passages, and I'm sure there's more, that deal with the idea of sonship being something that we grow into, a maturity that blossoms. Chapter 8, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are those who have learned that it's only by the Spirit that you can put to death the deeds of your flesh. Are you struggling with your flesh this week? Anybody struggle with gluttony on Thursday? You can't talk about that sin, Pastor. It's a sin. Anybody have a short temper or impatience? Oh, man, that stings, doesn't it? That's the pee under your mattress right there. That'll get you all every time. Make it where you can't sleep well at night. You guys get that reference? Okay, making sure. Good. Make it sh- this side's quiet. You're cackling like a wild man. I don't know. So all, yeah, P-E-A, not P-E-E, just making sure. I don't know if that's your situation, but I don't want to know. Uh, Verse 14, for all who are being led, notice passive, by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Those who are open to the Spirit, showing them how to put to death the deeds of the the flesh. They got to be replaced with something. So why not replace those things that put you in bondage from the world with the things of God? Spirit will lead you. Trust him. Look what it says here. Four. Here's an explanation. 15. You have not. Everybody see the word not? I encourage you. Get some colored pencils, highlighters, something. Not. No. It's not on the table. Now watch this. You have not received a spirit of slavery. Slavery. Enslavement. Bondage. Everybody got those ideas? You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to, what is it? Fear again. Why? Because that's how the world acts. Because the world lives in fear. Because the world is controlled by fear. Because fear dictates their decisions and their mindset. That's how unbelievers live. Guess what? 
It's not from God. In fact, I don't know why I did this. I'm going to pray it was led by the Spirit. I went through the entire book of Proverbs, and I looked up every time that the word fear is mentioned. Figured a good book to go to since it's a book of wisdom. With the exception of two instances, every time fear is mentioned in, in Proverbs, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord, over and over. You could almost tell like Solomon wanted to hammer it in the heads of the people who read that. Fearing the Lord above all else, that's all that matters. When you fear the Lord, you have nothing else to fear. When you reverence and respect him, nothing else binds you. The other two instances, one was in a positive manner, the other one was in a negative manner. Everything else, overwhelmingly, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. If you have fear in your life, he's letting you know that's not from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is a liberating spirit, not a binding spirit. In fact, it's our bondage and our fear that keeps the Spirit from being the liberator. Makes you wonder who's holding the key to that lock that chains us up, doesn't it? If I would just get my hands off of that, could be set free. We have another name for it, unbelief. Unbelief in the life. I don't believe that God is able to take care of this situation. And so I will respond like the world responds, and I will cower, and I will become paralyzed. Christian paralysis to fear. The Bible doesn't know anything about it. In fact, we're told, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, you have not been given a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. We either believe that or we don't believe that. But what we recognize the power agent that goes through that fear is the spirit of God. Look what it says. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption. It's not bondage, it's belonging. That's the difference. We would find that we could overcome a lot of the flesh patterns in our life, the bondage that holds on to us, if we would just recognize how God views us on this side and drawing us into himself and says, lay your head here, pour it out, call me daddy. You have that right. It's been freely given to you. The door is open. It is yours. It is mine. I'm a son of God. What? Yes. Do I always believe that? No, to my shame. And I can tell when I'm acting like a son of God and when I'm not. In fact, the regret comes from the fact that my choice could have been better. My thinking could have been better. My perspective could have been better. And if I would have had the word of God before me on it, my mind would have just been renewed in the fact of who I already am in Christ. Regrets are gone. They have no claim. He says here, the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Daddy, if you're a believer in Christ, this is you. You have this. It's yours. It's yours freely. It's yours by grace. And let me explain that real quick. Grace never takes into account what you deserve or don't deserve. Grace gives you all things freely by God because he is gracious, not because you're deserving of that grace. It's based on his person to give, not on whether or not you get more grace than this person or less grace than that person. It's grace regardless of what you deserve or don't deserve it's freely given of the Father. And here's the interesting thing. Every child of God has this in spades. In spades. What is Paul trying to get at here? God's desire for us as his children is to be mature. And to be mature is not self-sufficient. To be mature is to be spirit-reliant. Being mature is not, well, I can take care of myself. That's what the world has taught us. Well, you need to be independent. No. Being spiritually mature is being completely dependent. 
Trusting God to be the difference. Trusting God to be the work. Trusting God's to be superior. God's word to be superior over everything we've been told. And to be led by his spirit. That's risky. You don't know where he's going to take you. But it's right. And it's evidence of your maturing fellowship with him. If you're here today, and he uses this example of fear, and you're in bondage to fear, recognize that's not from God. That's not the spirit he gave you. He gave you a spirit that draws you close without reservation. Not one that requires a lot of nooks and crannies to be cleaned before you can be acceptable. I don't know about you, but holding on to all that stuff stresses me out. And there's enough to stress me out without me stressing myself out. If I'm stressing you out, I'm sorry. Spirit of God is here to liberate us from every one of those things. And here's a great thing. It's not like because I'm the, the pastor, I got like the executive spirit and you got like the, you know, twin bed spirit, you know. It's not it at all, man. I'm not any better than any of you. In fact, I'm probably the greatest of all sinners amongst you. But I tell you this, we all have the same spirit, the same glorious, divine, almighty God, Christ sent in dwelling Never leaving, always sealing spirit. I don't know about you, ma'am. There's much to praise God about with that. Much to praise God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that the word of God is full of hope. And that hope stems from you. How glorious it is to know that the spirit within us desires to lead us into greater understanding, experience, opportunities, conversations, might even just mess up our whole lifestyle. How much better we would be. Thank you, God, that this hope is ours, but it's also to be had. Convict our hearts by the Spirit where we hinder His work. And I pray, God, we lay down all these trivial trappings and desire for your spirit to lead us. Pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.